0: What are the top cyber threats to organizations in 2013? Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. Georgia Tech is out with a new report on the cyber threats of 2013. And I'm talking today with Paul Royal, his Associate Director of Georgia Tech's Information Security Center. Paul, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Glad to be on, Tom.
0: Paul, just for some background, what can you tell us about this new cyber threats report and how it was conducted?
1: Well, we sourced faculty at the Georgia Tech Information Security Center, as well as other parts of Georgia Tech, such as the Georgia Tech Research Institute. And then we wanted also contrasting views, so we reached out to a variety of people in industry and solicited a participation in this report and then aggregated together into major sections uh, the corresponding findings based on interviews of these people.
0: Well, Paul, I'm eager to get into the threats. I'm gonna ask you up front just to tell us briefly what are the top cyber threats, and then we'll get into each of them in depth. So, bottom line, what are the threats we need to be concerned about?
1: We should be concerned about the ease of availability of cloud-based resources being repurposed for, uh, for nefarious purposes. You can combine conventional types of uh, online cybercrime, like the theft of credit card numbers with what is effectively the recruitment of armies of virtual resources to use an attack. In addition, the way that your search history reflects the results you receive can actually be modified in a new type of attack. This isn't traditional search engine optimization. In this case, it's most specifically because modern search algorithms like those used by Google and Bing personalize the results based on your search history. So if an attacker can get a hold of the the piece of uh, validation data that lets them perform searches in your name, then they can actually change what you'll see in the future, even if you remove, say, a piece of malware that originally made those modifications. In addition, there is increasing concern uh, about organizations that have traditionally focused on securing their perimeter but now have to begin considering... Uh, allowing basically devices brought in, the BYOD model, uh, because that basically and effectively dissolves the perimeter. And then finally, attackers are finding new ways to monetize uh, different platforms, not so much mobile, but alternative operating systems like Mac OS X. Earlier this year, we saw 600,000-member botnet flashback emerge, which would actually monetize click on Macintosh-based systems. In addition, there are certain fundamental models that the security industry uses. Specifically, they make heavy use of automation to identify new threats. And we've seen the emergence of threats, uh, and this actually segues uh, again into mention a flashback that will basically use a type of software licensing, uh, almost digital rights management for malware, to make the process of threat identification and analysis difficult.
0: Paul, let's talk about each of these threats in some more depth. Let's start with the cloud-based botnets. When you're talking about these, are these similar to the botnets that we've seen used in the recent DDoS attacks against financial institutions?
1: I'm actually not familiar with the particulars of the attacks against the financial institutions, although it's, it's worth mentioning. And, and what I do know is that those were primarily attacks on, uh, on the websites. Uh, obviously, there's a separate set of networks that corresponds to the actual transactional business, although there is some annoyance associated with the customer's inability to log into the website. But it wouldn't be surprising to see a similar attack that was able to leverage virtual resources, again, acquired through illicit means. You can take, you know, a credit card number, buy a bunch of, say, Amazon EC2 instances or from another cloud provider, and then basically turn these into high-bandwidth attack cannons with which to attack your target.
0: So when you're talking about cloud-based botnets, what are you talking about? And with each of these threats, who do you see as the main actors behind them?
1: Well, you know, DDoS originally, or distributed denial-of-service, it was originally used almost in an extortion-like manner. If the availability of your website was fundamentally interleaved with your business model, you could make the website unavailable and then contact the affected organization. And this is as a more traditional cyber criminal that may have a botnet. And you'll say, by your website being down, you are losing, say, X hundreds of thousands of dollars an hour. If you pay me money, I'll discontinue the attack. Uh, your website's operation can return. These days... We're seeing more DDoS attacks by, by politically motivated individuals. We've actually seen, in addition to the potential recruitment of cloud-based resources, opt-in botnets. People in nation states that are willing and, and actually understand what they're doing with respect to running a piece of software that will be used in an attack. So, I would say we're, we're gonna start seeing a transition, and we've already started seeing that transition to some extent, of cyber criminals being the actors behind this to politically motivated uh, individuals, facilitating attacks for some type of, again, symbolic win. Obviously, say the operation of the White House does not depend on the availability of the whitehouse.gov site, but if it's unavailable, there are certain bragging rights uh, associated with that takedown.
0: Let's talk about search history poisoning. This is a new term to me, so talk a little bit more about it. Again, let's hear some a bit about the actors behind search history poisoning.
1: We, uh, we actually have not seen search history poisoning used in the wild by any actor yet. We've seen lots of, you know, traditional search engine optimization where you will popularize a link in order to get it to the sort of the top re- uh, set of results that a user sees. And to some extent, you know, in the uh, emerging cyber threats report, we're trying to be forward looking about perspective or potential problems. And so in this perspective or potential problem, a user going to a website that may be compromised or it may be overtly malicious. Instead of instead of them being, say, served malicious content that will result in the installation of malicious software on their computer, there may be, for example, JavaScript that will perform searches in their name. This can actually change the the order in which search results are pre- presented to them for prospective future searches in order to influence them in some way. In one example model. Uh, A user may be searching for a certain product, and by using search history poisoning, you can get the product of your choice. Say if it's in the category of boots, you can get a certain brand of boots appearing in the top set of links when it otherwise would not. There's also a similar or, I guess, perhaps newer type that is not necessarily dependent on search history poisoning but does leverage search, and that is increasing the relevance of favored or particular links. For example, if, if you run a, a say a, a, a single hotel that doesn't, it's not associated with a franchise brand, you can actually hire people for 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 literally pennies using a service like Mechanical Turk to click on various links based on searches to certain terms, and for example, as a consequence, uh, prevent any negative reviews from appearing within the first several pages of search results.
0: One of the other topics that you broach in the report is mobile, and you talk specifically about mobile browser and wallet vulnerabilities. Now, we've got organizations increasingly offering mobile services, allowing their employees to use mobile devices and brand-new mobile devices hitting the market this holiday season. What are the threats that concern you the most?
1: One concern, obviously, is the openness of uh, applications with respect to their installation on the Android platform. Apple uses a more closed model, and uh, we haven't yet seen any substantive threats for iOS. And interestingly enough, even for Android, if we, if we limit our perspective just to the United States, we, we observe a very low in- infection rate. You know, no, and, and it's so low, in fact, that it looks just like iOS. That's not the case in other countries. So in this case, while there are certainly criminals innovating out there in order to monetize the use of your mobile device, there seems to be reasonable oversight and response to mobile threats. Uh, in, in, say, the Android App Store. Even if you have the availability, i.e., even if there are malicious applications in the App Store, for whatever reason, people in the U.S. don't seem to be downloading those. And in some cases, that's because those applications are in a language that you wouldn't traditionally associate with the United States, for example, Chinese. And so on to, to actually respond in a positive note, right now, iPhone and Android are relatively both low-risk devices, at least if you're a U.S. citizen, are coming from America.
0: What are the mobile wallet vulnerabilities that concern you, Paul?
1: Well, earlier this year, there was an NFC proof of, proof of concept that was used to achieve arbitrary code execution. So, unfortunately, again, uh, as we begin increasing the functionality of our mobile device, and, and it represents a new platform, for example, as a way to pay, the newness and the relative immaturity of the systems and software uh, are going to create new opportunities for an attacker. it, it And that's similar, frankly, to to any new area you see.
0: Finally, let's talk about the malware counteroffensive, as you term it, Paul. What can you tell us about that?
1: Well, that's something of a complex topic. And in order to explore it, we need to look briefly at the traditional model of, say, the, the antivirus industry. These days, antivirus companies receive 100,000 or more new suspect executable samples. And that's because of, of techniques like packing, uh, other types of obfuscation, and, and even the, the evolution of the representation of those techniques, such as server-side polymorphism, which, off you, which automates obfuscations at the server side. As a consequence, you've got you know, all these new suspect binaries, and many of them, especially the malicious ones, are wrapped inside these layers of obfuscations that make the malicious portions of their program code appear as seemingly benign data. In addition, there's a series of executable protections that are supposed to make them somewhat tamper-resistant. So in many cases, the way to discover the subset of that gigantic fire hose that is meaningfully new, that is worthy of a human's attention for the purposes of creating new detections, you have to employ some type of automation. Now, the res- what we've seen in its most primitive representations right now, as a response by the malware authors, is the interleaving of the successful execution of of a binary with the original host that it infected. And so, fundamentally, you take the unique properties of the host, and you use them to make the binary dependent on those properties for its successful execution. Now, this has existed for a long time in traditional legitimate markets where you have to protect copyright, like streaming devices and other things, Uh, and, and, and even in the software industry where you want to license a piece of software this is basically software licensing or digital rights management for malicious software. And unfortunately, that has the potential to considerably stymie the automated mechanisms security organizations use to take the firehose and turn it into a tractably small subset that can be analyzed by a set of human beings.
0: Well, Paul, that's a great overview. When you look at the emerging threats and the actors behind them, what are the common themes that you see?
1: what we see overwhelmingly is a desire for criminals to to monetize resources in some way. And obviously the resources of a particular device will depend on the way in which it is monetized, but we we no longer see, for example, mischievous youngsters. There's almost always a a criminal or even nation-state angle with respect to a particular threat. Another common theme we see, and, and this is perhaps not surprising, is that, newer platforms and newer paradigms are all inevitably in the beginning going to have security problems. And as we continue innovating through the use of cloud-based resources and mobile devices that can one day act as a form of payment, we're invariably going to see problems in them.
0: What are some of the things that organizations need to be doing to counter these threats now?
1: Well, organizations, again, with respect to the mobile threat landscape and with, with themes like BYOD, they need to understand that uh, the notion of of an organizational perimeter is is quickly disintegrating. In addition, they need to understand that criminals will often be opportunistic, and thus one risk mitigation strategy is risk deference, which which means to make yourself less desirable as a target because there may be an alternative organization that would be easier to go after. Um, Otherwise, organizations need to prioritize security. It should not be an afterthought. Most major organizations should have the equivalent of a chief information security officer, and instead of having several people that he reports to to actually get to the CEO, he should presumably have a direct line.
0: And let's talk about what information security pros can be doing. In terms of their own careers, what do they need to be doing to prepare themselves to help their organizations counter these threats? How can they be more valuable to their organizations?
1: Well, I think they need to understand the changes that are occurring with respect to the way people use computing devices. Uh, the more, like a computer, your mobile device becomes, the more desirable it will be to an attacker. And, of course, the more feature-rich, say, a mobile device becomes, the greater potential there is for sensitive data, for example, to be stored on that, which, again, it cre- increases its attractiveness to attackers. So, unfortunately, you know, last century's security best practices don't necessarily hold. You have to understand how things are changing in order to be of greater value to your organization so you can put up the appropriate defenses to mitigate the risks associated with, with changing technology paradigms.
0: Well, Paul, let's bring this home to Georgia Tech. What are you doing at Georgia Tech? to change your own programs even, to help prepare tomorrow's information security professionals and today's to respond to these emerging threats?
1: One thing we're trying to focus on in general within um, the computer science program is the integration of security concepts earlier into the undergraduate curriculum. And what that specifically means is that we're taking classes that are otherwise completely unrelated to security and exposing security concepts to students in a way such that, you know, they, they don't think it's security, so that it will feel more accessible to them. In one example, we have a class where students are first introduced to the C programming language, and with the introduction of a low-level programming language like C, you have the opportunity of buffer overflows. And so, for example, we designed a lab where students will actually understand how stack smashing works and will actually be required to... S- to smash the stack of an executable so they can understand the consequences, for example, of the combination of using a low-level programming language and not uh, mediating input as it should be.
0: Well, final question for you, Paul. Again, you just released Georgia Tech Cyber Threats 2013 report. How should individuals and organizations use this
1: report? Well, we, we attempted to target a wide audience to either learn more about what we think are going to be important threats that require mitigation, but it can also serve as a general reference in terms of what are the problems in a particular area. So, you know, if if an organization is considering a policy of, say, BYOD, they should carefully read the mobile malware section and, as appropriate, um, even reach out to g for more in-depth feedback uh, about the nature of the problem and what we're seeing.
0: Very good. Paul, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight today. Thank you, Tom. We've been talking about Georgia Tech's Cyber Threats 2013 report. I've been talking with Paul Royal, he's Associate Director of Georgia Tech's Information Security Center. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.